Podcastle episode 203 for April 3rd, 2012. Buried Eyes by Levi Tadar. Rated R for violence, drug use, sex, strong language, just about everything else you can imagine, too. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and today our journey takes us back to the lands of swords and sorcery. At the beginning of last summer, we played for you one of Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian stories. It was Podcastle 162 for those of you at home keeping score, and Howard is as good a place as any to track where this specific subgenre began. A lot's happened since Conan, though. Whether it's Michael Moorcock's Elric or Fritz Lieber's Farford and the Grey Mouser, a lot's changed, and yet, a lot stayed the same, too. We still have a hero, or pair of heroes, roaming the countryside looking for jobs and adventure. And yet, one of the things that attracted us to this particular story is that it feels very much like a new branch of where swords and sorcery is now. So this week, we've traded in a medieval setting for a more western vista, and our swords, well, for something with a little more kick. Podcastle is very proud to present Buried Eyes by Levitadar. The story was originally published in 2012's Postscripts collection, and a big thanks to Peter Crowther at PS Publishing for letting us run it. Levitadar is, I think, one of the most prolific writers I know of. His novels include the Bookman Histories trilogy and Osama, and his short stories have appeared in Innerzone, Strange Horizons, Fantasy Magazine, and way, way, way too many others for me to name. He had a novella in 2011 called Gorel and the Potbellied God, and later on this year, PS Publishing is releasing a companion collection called Black God's Kiss, featuring more stories of Gorel, including this one. That'll be published by PS Publishing, and you can find them online at pspublishing.co.uk. Levy's also one of the authors who can now claim pulling off the escape artist hat trick. He's been published in all three podcasts. To read this one, we asked our own personal Conan the Lizard King, Graham Dunlop, who in addition to reading Robert E. Howard's Barbarian also read Forrest Podcastle 146, The Surgeon's Tale, our fourth most downloaded episode of all time. Graham lives in Australia and helps with a bunch of different podcasts, including the excellent new Cast of Wonders, which is a YA fiction podcast, as well as Pseudopod. Speaking of which, if you did Graham's reading and like darker stories, you should check out Pseudopod 272, The Dark and What It Said. I listened to it in broad daylight and I'm still shivering. So... Believe me when I say that hokey religions and ancient magics are no match for a good six-shooter at your side, kid. Enjoy the story. Buried Eyes by Lavie Tidar The half-dressed girls passed silently between the lying figures, their bare feet making no sound as they stepped on the sand. Low-lying metal braziers cast a shifting glow and made the girls' shadows move as of their own accord. Gorel of Goliris lay on his back on the thick rich carpet under the stars, and what he saw no one could tell. One of the girls stopped and knelt beside him. Are you comfortable? she asked. She took his hand and put two long graceful fingers against his wrist. 
Is it time for another one? She waited. Presently, Gorel closed and opened his eyes. The girl, used to such minute communication, took it for assent. The long, thin needle was almost translucent, but the nature of the material passing through it had stained it in fantastical whorls of yellows and reds. It was the quill of a small desert dweller. Gorel had captured and eaten several of its kind. The girl held his arm and her practised fingers searched his naked flesh. Gorel's lips moved, though little sound escaped. The girl stroked his hair. Soon now, she murmured. Soon. Hush now. Finding a suitable place, she pressed the needle into his arm with one practised motion. The needle was attached by a long, thin tube to a contraption of metal and glass standing upright beside Gorel and the girl. The bottom component was a glass jar filled with water. A pipe ran up and into a metal bowl. The girl moved her hand over the bowl and murmured words, too quiet to be heard. The bowl began to smoke. The smoke had a sweet, pungent smell. Everyone at the place knew it intimately. The water in the jar began to bubble. The girl took hold of a bulb attached to the side of the device and began to pump it. The water bubbled harder and the smoke grew more intense. A sluggish substance began to drizzle down the long tube and into the needle. Gorel sighed, a weak exhalation of air, and closed his eyes. The girl continued to pump and with her other hand stroked Gorel's hair. Better now, she said. Everything is fine now. There was no past anymore and no future for Gorel. There was only now, a now in which the craving subsided and he was content, a now that required no thought, only acceptance. He sighed again at peace and closed his eyes against the star's brightness. Hours, days passed. Gorel knew nothing beyond the glow of the low braziers, the murmured assurances of the girls, and the sweet, omnipresent atmosphere of the narcotic. Days, hours later, a commotion awakened Gorel from his stupor. Shouts erupted near the enclosure. There was the sound of drawn steel, and following that, someone laughing. The sword sounds were repeated. The laughing voice said something unintelligible. Then there were gunshots. There were screams then, but they cut short. There were no more sword sounds. The next noise was of someone treading heavily between the lying figures, speaking as if to himself, and gradually coming closer. Yes, that's a nice ring. I think I'll take that. You wouldn't mind, would you? No, I didn't think so. So kind. And this... A genuine pendant of protection from the wizard Burgon of Bilal. Yes, I do believe it is his mark there. Nice workmanship, I must say. Not doing you much good, though, is it? Of course, I'm not actually doing you any harm in removing it from your possession, so I uh, assume it works. Well, well, what have we here? The voice had come close to Gorel. I know these guns, the voice said. 
Six-shot, handcrafted with the silver inlay on the grip of a seven-pointed star. Where did you steal these, you bastard? And a face bent down to Garel's level, and a hand reached and lifted his eyelids, and a breath heavy with the smell of drink and of smoke, and, strangely, the tang of the sea, blew on his face. And the voice said wonderingly, In the name of the drowned god, is that you? Garel opened his eyes. The face looming above him kept going in and out of focus. What happened to you? Garel smiled at the face. Then he passed out. He came to on hard ground, but when he opened his eyes, the looming face was still there. It was a remarkable face. The skin was a bluish green, the flesh craggy like the deeps and rises of an underwater landscape. The eyes were milky white but hooded. It was as if a film was cast over them. The face smiled, the landscape moving as in a slow-moving volcanic eruption, and teeth emerged like islands from the deep. You look like shit, the face said. It's nice to see you too, Jericho, Garel said. He felt the craving return then, as desperate a need as it had ever been, and he tried to rise but the other man's arms effortlessly held him down. You're not going anywhere, Gorel. I don't know how you got yourself in this shape, but I need you functioning. Then get me some dust. There is no more dust, Gorel. Get me some dust or get your hands off me. What are you going to do, Gorel? Fight me? Gorel strove against the iron arms that held him captive. Let go, fish man. Jericho laughed. <laughs> Is that the best you can come up with? He looked down at Gorel and shook his head. I'll tell you what, man of Galeris, when you can force me to release you, then I will let you go. All that day and that night, Gorel was in the throes of delirium, and he raved and screamed and tried to fight his friend, and the curse of the goddess Shah held full sway over him. But Jericho Moon had found a simple solution. He bound Garel's arms and his legs and left him hanging from the thick branch of a tree while he sat nearby and smoked the strange, translucent blue pipe of the aquatic people, the Merlangai, holding it one-handed and inhaling the smoke of the seaweed they call derin or gitan and which is found in abundance in the gardens of the Merlangai, the water folk, who have the monopoly of it and guard it jealously. To make his weight more comfortable, Jericho simply put large mufflers over his ears. So the day passed, and the night. The next morning Gorel's fever broke, but, so it seemed, did he. He would not speak, nor accept food, and his eyes were dull and listless. On the third morning Jericho Moon looked into the eyes of Gorel of Galeris, and knew the futility of his attempt. And so he disappeared, leaving Garel tied up, and returned much later, and when he came back there was a small white packet amongst his possessions. He showed that packet to Garel. Ah, uh, I thought so, Jericho Moon said as he watched his friend thrash silently. So that got your attention. All right. He took a deep breath. At his neck the two small gills on each side opened and closed briefly. Gorel, I am not a physician, nor a priest. You want the dust, and that's fine with me. But, can you function on it, 
or will you go back to lie amidst the others like you, in that place where I found you, where many come but few ever leave? Give me the dust. The words were barely a whisper. Can you manage it? For a while. I need you for a job. Garel bared his teeth. It could have been a grin, it might have been a snarl. Jericho Moon unconsciously took a step back. Give me the dust and give me my guns. And you've got yourself a partner, Moon. I don't need a partner, Jericho Moon muttered. But he opened the packet carefully and dipped his finger inside it and returned with the fine powder that was there and put it under Garel's nose. I just need someone to take orders for a while. Garel inhaled, and his whole body relaxed. For a moment, nothing else happened. Then, in his old voice, Garel said, Untie me, Jericho. Sure thing, the half-aquatic said. He pulled out a long, thin blade and cut the rope. Garel fell down to the ground. Jericho Moon laughed, and then he knelt beside Garel and cut the knots that still held Garel captive. Guns. Jericho Moon, without a word, went away and returned with Garel's gun belt. The half-naked man strapped the gun belt on. He drew both guns simultaneously, spun them, cocked them, uncocked, spun them again, and returned them to their holsters. Give me a drink and a cigar, Garel of Galeris said, and I'm ready to listen to your offer. It's nice to see you too, Jericho Moon said. They sat around the fire and drank and talked about the old days. The packet of dust remained with Jericho. I was surprised to find you at that place, Jericho said at last. Are you going to be able to function? Do you mean can I still shoot? Garel said. His friend smiled. Then he said, There's a lot of God's dust floating around these days. It used to be they settled for faith, but now... He didn't complete his thought, and Garel smiled, though not in amusement. Itinerant gods, he said, not bound by a place or a people. It was an itinerant god that... He too did not complete his thought. They drank some more. Garel lit a fresh cigar. The fire burned low. Garel said, what's the job? There's an old town three days' ride from here called Prosperity. Prosperity? I'm hoping that would be our Prosperity, Garel. The half-Merlangi grinned, then continued. Used to be a few Merlangi there, working underwater mining in the river mouth. Used to be lots of mining down there. What sort of mining? You know the dark blue stones they call buried eyes? Small round things. Yes. Garel said, and his voice was quiet. I saw them used for totem's eyes in the Romango wastelands. The Messina campaign? Yes. So you know what they're worth? Garel knew. He remembered the silent, immense figures rising out of the fog, out of nowhere, silent and unmoving and watchful, ancient evil figures whose eyes were a dark blue nothingness. He'd been moving through the wastelands with a platoon of other soldiers for hire, and the fog was so thick they had to hold hands not to be separated. 
There was a scream from the man ahead of him, and he let go of Gorel's hand. There was a gust of wind then, and in the sudden clearing of the fog, Gorel saw a ring of totems open at one end, and his friend running blindly and entering the ring, and the silent onlookers seemed to close around him. The fog shifted again. Gorel had never seen him again, nor anyone else from his platoon. Look, Gorel, they're precious stones, gems, they're valuable. Gems aren't intrinsically good or bad, they just are. Like gods. There was a short silence. Then, Gorel, are you interested or do I need to find someone else for the job? Gorel drank from the bottle and felt the alcohol numbing, if only a little, the much deeper, stronger layer of cravings that resided in him. I'm still listening, he said. His friend grinned. Right. Guy used to run things there? Old sorcerer. Don't know his name. The Merlang guy I spoke to just called him boss. He used to run the mining operation and the selling, though they said there'd never been much outside trade. If they're right, there should be a store of buried ice still there, just waiting for someone to come and pick it up. Someone like us, Gorel. And the old guy. The boss. Garrell said. He didn't voice the thought that came unbidden to his mind, the words the goddess Shar had said to him before enslaving him, before he killed her. On the vast sandlands of Mescatel, I met an old sorcerer. An old sorcerer who might have knowledge of Goliris. What's one wizard? the half-aquatic said, and he grinned and his eyes were hard. If he's even still alive, we could take him easy. Gorel had the smile. Guns against sorcery, he said, and his friend clapped him on the back and said, <laughs> Just like in the old days. They rode across the desert at daybreak, travelling while it was yet cool to move under that great open expanse of sky, before the sun could reach high enough to become a burning eye that remorselessly found anything that dared to move. They rode the great travelling beasts of the sandlands of Mescatel, swift, multi-legged desert dwellers, whose tough carapace turned a fetching green colour as the animals absorbed the energy of the sun. They were called Graal. At this early time of the morning they moved slowly, but Garel and Jericho were not in a hurry. Travel in the desert was a matter of endurance, not speed. Before they left, Gorel had taken more dust. It was plentiful in Mescatel. The desert, it seemed, was a natural lodestar for itinerant gods. So now he rode, settling back into the familiar rhythm of the journey, as the beast's multiple leg pairs scuttled smoothly over the sand, and the creature, every so often, breathed, releasing the noxious gas that had collected inside it, and replacing it with air. There was a long pause between each breath. When they'd crested one of the tall sand dunes, they stopped and let the beasts drink. These were domesticated growl, and the two poison glands in their tails had been removed, but it was still an awesome and frightening sight to watch them as they raised their tails in the air and lowered their heads. It was early enough yet for them to drink, and Gorel watched as slowly... Slowly water condensed on the Graal's tail and slid, drop by drop, down its body to the head. 
The Graal drank. Jericho Moon looked at them and sighed. <sighs> Wish I could do that. How did you end up here in the desert? Garel said, and the half-aquatic shrugged and said, It's a long story. He was dressed from head to toe in a blue cloak. His head was cowled. He looked less like a gunfighter than a monk, which he once was, in the service of the drowned god. But Garel knew not to underestimate him. They'd fought side by side before. He said, hating the words, Do you have more dust? No. I need a little more, Jericho, just a little. The gun materialised in Jericho's hand as if by sorcery. There was a big, ugly, organic-looking device from the foundries of the Merlangai, who used the soft, silver-coloured alkali metals to smelt their materials in big, bright, controlled underwater explosions. It was made of the metal and wood of sunken ships, beaten into shape with potassium and cesium, and carrying slugs loaded with the spirits of drowned sailors. It was a nasty piece of workmanship, and the former monk's most prized possession. Are you going to be a problem, Gorel? Just tell me once, but make it stick. I need someone I can trust. Gorel squinted at his friend. The craving burned. Burned. But underneath it was still pride. He thought he'd lost it for a while. He was... Surprised to discover it was still there. He said, You think you can shoot faster than I can draw? The half-aquatic grinned. <laughs> you want to try? They circled each other. Their beasts stood stock still, gathering the precious moisture, absorbing the rays of the sun as their carapace turned a darker shade of green. They looked like jade statues, carved and left on top of a dune by a long-vanished people's. You know I can take you. Maybe you can, not that. Jericho Moon sighed and the gun vanished. He said, What about it, Gorel? Can I trust you? Gorel stood as motionless as the growl. The craving was there, that sweet, terrible curse put on him with a god's kiss. But there was also pride and stubbornness. And the thought above all of vanished Galerus that which he had lost and had sworn to win again, his birthright and his fall. He nodded his head once, a fraction. Let's ride, he said. The next day the landscape changed. The dunes remained behind and the land turned into sandy prairie. Before noon they found a brook and stopped on its bank. The two Graal, disdaining so much water, went and sat in the sun, their legs folded beneath them, their tails drawn, until they resembled two large gemstones that turned gradually darker. Jericho Moon jumped into the brook and didn't surface. He lay motionless under water, his eyes closed, his chest rising and falling in a slow, steady rhythm. Gorel cursed him, waded in himself and washed. He drank from the fresh, cooling water and lay in the shade and smoked a cigar and watched the barren land that seemed to stretch forever before hitting a distant horizon. They rode again as the sun sank low in the sky, the growl picking up speed, and made their camp in the crook of a hill and built a fire and slept beside its embers. On the third day the land changed little, but there were more signs of habitation, or the remnants of such. 
On a hill in the distance, they saw what appeared to be an abandoned windmill. A little further on, they came across a small settlement. Two wooden houses, roughly built. A small outhouse. A fenced area that may have served for cattle, had there been any. They approached cautiously, guns drawn, but the place had the silence of disuse. When they disembarked and went inside, they found the same basic austere lack inside. In the second house they found a table laid out for six, and plates and pots on the table filled with a black-grey gunk. Jericho stared at the tableau mournfully. Looks like they just sat down to eat. And... Got called away? Had to leave in a hurry? Who would live in a place like this? No one now, Jericho said. Gorel turned, and turned again. He felt uncomfortable. The closeness of this wooden shack oppressed him. He felt the walls trying to close in on him. There was a dusty, dead smell to the place. His palms itched, and the craving threatened to drown him. Give me some dust, he said huskily and Jericho didn't argue this time. He wordlessly passed the packet to Gurel. When the god's dust hit, he felt immediately different, alert, conscious, focused. But the sense of wrongness remained. He handed the packet back to Jericho, equally wordless, and began to prowl the cabin, his hand trailing the wooden walls. The wood felt rough, unvarnished. On his second pass around the room, his finger caught on a wood splinter and it pricked his skin. The sense of wrongness intensified. He raised his eyes, but could see nothing in the wall before him. And yet, something was there. Something was watching him, and Gorel felt himself shudder. He raised his finger and slowly, carefully passed it along the wall, drawing a line of blood. A face peered at him from the texture of the wood, and he jumped back, his hand coming to rest on the butt of his gun. Nearby, Jericho too had tensed. What is it? Gorel looked into the revealed face. Two dark blue eyes stared back at him, expressionless. He took a step back, hand still on his gun. It's an icon, he said, I think. What? The half-aquatic came closer and peered at the face. So it is. It was a picture embedded into the wall. The face that stared out wasn't human. What it was, it was traced into the wood. No, it was... Gorel looked closer, trying to avoid the gaze of those horrible blue eyes. Sorcery, he said. The icon had been worked into the wood itself. It had not been visible until... Until his blood awakened it, he shuddered and pulled out his gun. The dark blue eyes stared at him impassively. The face was strange, shriveled and blotchy at once, like something that had been left to die in the desert sun, only to then be finished off in a violent drowning. And the eyes, he knew those eyes. Gemstones, buried eyes, and he knew they were aware of him. He was going to shoot that face. Bullets were the only cure for magic as far as Gorel was concerned. He drew the gun, then... Jericho, what are you doing? The half-aquatic turned and grinned. There was a long, thin blade in his hand. He was rooting in the wood, twisting the knife from side to side. 
One of the eyes came out of the socket in the wood and plopped into Jericho Moon's hand. I'd say I'm making a start. He tapped the knife gently against the stone. Beautiful. Look at that polish work. He turned his attention to the other eye and this time drove the knife straight into the drawn eye socket. Jericho, I don't think. There was a shriek of terrible strength. The gem fell into Jericho's hand and now both eyes stared up at him mournfully. The face in the wall changed. The contours of the wood shifted. The grotesque face expanded, staring blindly from its timber prison. The eyes swiveled in Jericho's hand this way and that, seeing him, seeing Gorel. The face opened a mouth, began to form words. The voice that came out of the old wood was itself like old rotting timber. It screamed, Go away! It said. Eat lead, Garel said, and he raised his pistol and let out two shots, one after the other, the twin explosions loud in the small space. The bullets hissed when they penetrated the icon. Jericho jumped back and his hand closed on the two gemstones. The face in the wall froze in mid-grimace and was still. Let's get out of here, Garel said. They rode slowly after that, and when they saw signs of settlement, they steered clear away. What signs there were remained few. The geography of the place was one of almost total desolation. It was as if life had come here, had attempted to settle, and had horribly failed. Towards night they came to the town. They'd crested a hill when they came upon the place. It lay below in a shallow valley, an assortment of wood and stone houses and beaten metal shacks, ramshackle and haphazard in their construction, leaning to one side of a narrow serpentine river the colour of a boiled eel. There were no lights down there. Directly in front of them was a tree, and from the tree hung a corpse. It was an old-looking corpse, a corpse like old leather. It had the same dried, followed by drowned look of the icon they'd seen. It looked as if it had been dead for a long time. Its eyes had been taken out. In their place were blue gemstones. As the corpse came alive, it began to twitch on the end of the rope. It began to speak, getting as far as go. It was Jericho who used his gun this time, shooting the rope and dropping the corpse to the ground. He then knelt beside it and used his knife to extract the two eyes from its sockets. The corpse twitched feebly against him at first, then subsided. Jericho slipped the two stones into a little pouch and closed it tightly. That makes four in total, he said. And that makes two warnings in total, Corral said. How many more do you think we're going to get? The half-aquatic shrugged. That's two more than you'd usually get. They spurred their beasts down the hill towards the town. The sun was setting on the horizon, and in the fading light the town looked abandoned and forlorn, like a decrepit old man sleeping his last sleep. Yet as they approached it, and the darkness grew and threatened to engulf the town, an unexpected thing happened and made them slow their mounts. Lights, faint at first but clearly there, and growing gradually in strength, 
were winking into being amidst the old abandoned buildings, moving as if with a life of their own, here and there, until the town took on an enchanted aspect, the lights like residents strolling through the narrow, dusty avenues at dusk. Jericho Moon reached low in his saddle and returned with a firearm. It was an enormous gun. Gorel, very carefully, said, What is that? The gun was seaweed green. Seams of azure quartz ran through its length. Jericho said, It's a gun. Really? More lights formed and began to move. Gorel tensed. He, too, reached for his guns. There was sorcery at work here. Gorel hated sorcery. Jericho said, It's a... The sound he made wasn't human. Gorel, who had a fair knowledge of several Malangai dialects, said, The hand cannon of the drowned god. They say when the drowned god descended below into the infinite realms, his warriors followed him down, sacrificing themselves in order to serve their master. But as the drowned god had to die in order to be reborn, so did his followers. When the twenty-seven warriors awoke into new life in the infinite realms, they were transformed. And so were the arms they carried with them. And this is one of those weapons? They were approaching the town's gates. They were open. A worn sign hanging from a rotting wooden cross said, Welcome to Prosperity, Pop 375. This is the drowned god's cannon, yes. They paused before the gates. The sun had almost disappeared. The darkness was smooth around them. They could see the moving lights, but no people. The rusty, beaten metal gate shook, though there was no wind. Gorel drew his gun. Let me get this right, he said. You're telling me that this monstrosity you're holding... This hand cannon, and I don't even want to imagine what sort of load it fires. You're telling me this is, in effect, a religious relic? The half-Malangai aimed the huge gun through the open gate. He already knows we're here. He sent us warnings twice. There is little point in trying to be stealthy. What did you have in mind? Jericho Moon grinned and pulled the trigger. There was, Gorel had the impression of something huge, something that wasn't quite solid enough and yet was terrifyingly real, emerging from the mouth of the gun. It seemed to expand as it flew out of the barrel, fleetingly taking on the shape of one of the great old ones of the sea, a terrifying being bigger than a whale that flew through the gates, through the closing darkness and scattered the bobbing elemental lights, and with a great tearing and breaking, slammed into the walls of the town, into its decrepit houses and tin shacks, and exploded. A huge fireball rose into the sky, and in its light... The town was revealed in horrid relief. It was a dead town, an empty town, a town joined together by wires and strings and old spit, where nothing lived, where nothing had a right to live. And yet, in the light of the explosion, the other lights were not extinguished, but revealed. They floated this way and that, and their faces were empty, and their eyes shone a sickly blue. 
They had bodies of a sort, but they were ethereal, and their feet never seemed to quite touch the ground. The two growl raised their stingless tail in a defensive crouch. Gorel had to hold on as the balance of his beast shifted beneath him. He stared at Jericho. The half-aquatic stared back at him. Realisation tasted bitter in Gorel's mouth. The dark blue eyes of the dead were everywhere, and he knew that soon they would come for him. He said, It's a ghost town. Jericho, who was a former sea-dweller, was not unused to the spirits of the dead, merely shrugged. Then let's kill some dead people. Gorel sighed. Let's, he said. He cocked his gun. They rode forward and crossed the threshold of the town. The town changed. Where before it was dark, now it was full of light. Street lamps burned and cast a friendly yellow glow over cobbled, narrow streets. There was the smell of roasting meats and baking bread and smoke rising from chimneys. The streets were full of people. There was no sign of the explosion. The houses were sturdy and looked new, and the town itself looked clean and prosperous. It's an enchantment, Gorel said. Beside him, Jericho nodded. Maybe it's like one of those hundred-year spells, where you think you've spent one night at a ball, but it turns out a hundred years have actually passed. You think so? It could be nice. You remember Champol, the wizard? Sure. He got drunk once and told me he was over two hundred years old. This had happened to him twice. Then he said, I'll never forget her, and fell asleep. Hmm, that does sound like Champol. As they rode through the town, no one disturbed them. There was a festive air to the crowd. There were small stalls on the sides of the road selling drinks and food, and people milled about, chatting, smiling. There were families, and small babies, and children, and the small furry pets they called Daryl, who have eight legs, and which children like to carry on their arms. There were some mounted men on growl of their own, and several malangi, and in the distance there was singing, and someone was playing a musical instrument. What do we do? Gorel said. He could feel the enchantment stealing over him, trying to win him over. Already he was beginning to succumb to it, knowing the town, remembering it, recognising that woman there. The woman that... Gorel? He was married and had a wife and her name was... Her name was... Gorel! There was a woman on the corner of the road they were following, standing behind a stall selling some sort of roasted nuts, and she was looking directly at him. He thought she was extraordinarily beautiful. Her skin was like smooth obsidian stone, polished to perfection. She was night, and her eyes were stars. And when she smiled, a thrill went through Gorel, and he felt a hunger awaken inside him. We find the old man, Jericho said. He must be hiding somewhere in the centre of this. We find him, we find the stones, we get out. Gorel, we need to stay together. Gorel. But Gorel's growl was already turned, and Jericho was left alone as Gorel, oblivious to his friend's curses, rode a short way and stopped and dismounted. Jericho cursed again. Ugh, you always had too much in common with old Champol, he said, but there was no one there to listen. 
Her name was Erin, and she kissed him as soon as he came to her. Her lips were got against his. She tasted of cinnamon and chilli. Gerard, she said, and he answered to the name. He swept her up in his arms, and she laughed a sound of delighted surprise, and said, I was waiting for you. I had to go check something, he said apologetically. There were reports two strangers came to town today. Gunslingers. Did you have any trouble, she said worried, and he laughed and kissed her again. None, he said. They won't be a problem. Good, she said, because the celebrations are about to start. I was afraid you'd miss it. There is time yet, Gerard said, murmuring the words into her neck, and she laughed and pushed him away, but not too far. The children, she said, and Gerard said, the children are playing with their friends. The last thing they need is us right now. Erin smiled and shook her head and said, and what did you have in mind, Sheriff? Let me show you, he said, and he swept her up again and carried her away into their house. They made love hurriedly, their passion demanding complete attention, the way they did when they were young. They crashed into the table and he spread her down on it and tasted her, and she cried as his tongue explored her. She pulled him over her like a blanket and engulfed him, her body drinking in his, and as he entered her, her black almond eyes looked at him and never closed or blinked, looking steadily into his face. And he looked back, and they could see each other's pleasure reflected in the other's face. Do you love me? she said. They lay together in front of the fireplace, where the dying embers glowed faintly. I've always loved you, he said. They made love again then, slower this time, he like an explorer discovering her body, she tracing her fingers over his skin. She took him in her mouth and he groaned and she laughed and touched him until he could take it no longer and she turned and snuggled into him, her back fitting into his chest and he took her from behind as they lay on the rugs he had once caught and skinned for her. She moaned as he thrust into her, softly at first, the sound rising with their movements. Then she turned and pushed him back and straddled him, and he held her breasts and marvelled at their beauty as she rocked above him. They lay again in each other's arms, and he felt drained and happy and free the way one does sometimes in dreams. Then she said, The ceremony! We must hurry up! And Gerard sighed and knew that his short happiness was over. They got up and dressed and, holding each other's hands, went out into the street. As they walked towards the town centre, two children joined them and Gerard lifted them up into his arms and held them, his boy and his girl, two fine children who he loved. They walked amongst the others, the people of this town, the town of which he was sheriff, and as they passed their friends and neighbours, they all greeted him, and he greeted them back. It was a small, happy community. As they reached the clock tower on the square it sat in the middle of, Garad saw that the ceremony had almost started. The stage had been erected the day before, and now the dignitaries were already seated, the mayor looking important, and the man from the mining corporation, and of course the boss, the old man himself, without whom they wouldn't be here. I have to go, he said, turning to his wife, and she kissed him, and said, we'll be watching you.
He put the children down, leaving the boy to play with his Daryl pet, the small animal clutching hold of its small owner's hand with its legs, rotating its head and making a happy clicking sound at the boy. He went to join the others on the stage. The mayor waved at him. The man from the mining corporation looked bored. The old man... He looked at Gerard briefly and his eyes... Though you could never read the old man's eyes, yet still there was something, perhaps in the expression of the face, that made Gerard unquiet. The old man could see further than anyone. What did he see that disturbed him so? He walked slowly, greeting familiar faces, but not stopping. He'd almost reached the steps to the stage when a face in the crowd caught his eyes. A Merlangai face, but not quite. A halfling, perhaps? He knew that face, and a name almost came bubbling to the surface of his mind. A gunslinger, by the looks of him, a stranger to the town? Their eyes met. Of course. It was only Melanel, one of the Merlangai miners, recently arrived. He was a good lad, worked with the others in the river, drank at the sign of the drowned cross. Strange. For a moment he'd almost thought... He began to board the steps to the stage. He was the last to arrive and he smirked to himself as he climbed. He had a good reason to be late, hadn't he? He stopped for a moment and looked back, searching for her face. She saw him looking and smiled. He was a lucky guy. He got to the stage and they all nodded and he sat between the man from the corporation and the boss and the old man turned to him and said, Sheriff, it's good to see you. You too, sir, he said, and meant it. The old man had been too withdrawn recently, was seldom seen any more amongst the town people. It was good that he'd come out on this, the day of their celebration, on town day. He looked and saw his wife, and again thought what a lucky man he was. As the speeches started, however, and he was sitting there, almost motionless, looking at the people's happy and expectant faces, something began to gnaw at him. Something was souring his mind, ruining his enjoyment of the spectacle. He could not tell what it was. He'd never experienced something similar. It was almost like a, a physical pain, an ache that robbed the lights of their glamour in the evening of its mood. He felt hot and cold, and a need arose in him, a need for something ill-defined, a, a thing not of love or hate, not of this world, but outside of it that existed only for its own ends and had no answer here. He looked into the crowd again and saw the same face, the half-Merlangai Melanal, only the name no longer seemed to fit the face, which, like all the others, looked up happy and expectant at the stage. It was another name, a rogue's name that came throbbing through his aching head. The old man turned to him again, looking concerned. Sheriff, you feeling all right? I feel a little strange, he said. His name was Garrett. That, too, somehow didn't feel right. He shivered. He was cold. He needed... There was something he needed. Something he ached for. His body ached for. Something light and strange. An unknown substance. I have some medication here, the old man said. Here, let me... And he rooted through the pouch that he always carried with him, slung over his sorcerer's robes. But Gerard said, No, I'm, I'm sure I'll be fine, just... 
And he saw again that face in the crowd, and he knew, somehow he knew, that the man whose face it was had what he, Gerard, no, Gorel, needed, the thing he wanted, desired, craved, beyond life and death itself. He rose from his seat. The old man looked alarmed. Sheriff, please, he said, but Ger, Gor, he shook away the old man's hand. He looked at him then and saw something unexpected. There was pain in those eyes, an old, old pain. But deeper still there was amusement, and it startled him. He staggered away as if drunk and heard the speaker on the stage stop, and the audience turned to look at him, and he didn't care. His hand rested on the butt of his gun and it felt good, it felt familiar, it felt right. He jumped from the stage and made for the half-Merlangi. The world tilted sideways and changed, and he was in the dark. No! Where there had been people, there were eerie blue-green lights, bobbing in invisible seats, and beyond each light was a... He felt bile rise to his throat, and he staggered, and only the terrible need drove him on. They were dead, not the skeletal dead, not ethereal the way ghosts should be, but... The eyes of corpses stared at him without emotion. He knew the eyes. The eyes... They were the stones he'd come to steal. The eyes were set into bodies moulded into being from rotting flesh and mud and sorcery. The eyes shone blue and green. The eyes tracked him. Amidst the blackness and the dead's bright eyes, only one other figure was real and he made for it. He reached him unopposed and grabbed him and waves of heat and cold passed through him and his throat was parched and sore. Give it to me, he said. But the other didn't see him. Jericho, Gorel said. He was Gorel. The illusion of the town washed away from him like dust and made him feel mud-stained and dirty. He slapped to the other, but he was not there. He was Melanal, and he was in the other town still, the place of the dead where he did not belong. Gorel tried to search through his clothing, but he could not find the packet. He felt panic building, and breathing came hard. He pulled out his long, thin knife. Jericho! Quickly, without pause for thinking, he slashed his friend's cheek with the blade. Jericho twitched. A shudder ran through him. Gorel slapped him again. Jericho! And suddenly he knew, and it horrified him. He would kill him if he had to. Kill him to get to the packet of dust secreted on his friend's person. Kill to make the need, the horrid need, abate. He put away the blade and drew his gun. If you want to stay with them, he said, speaking softly, then I can make it permanent. And he shoved the gun into the half guy's mouth and cocked the hammer, heedless of the sound of his friend's breaking teeth. Choose, he said. Still there was no answer. His friend's eyes looked into another world and saw nothing of Gorel. Jericho! Nothing. And then behind his back, Gorel heard a soft, low laughter. Gorel didn't turn. He pulled the gun out of his friend's mouth. Jericho's face was a crimson flower of blood. Gorel sighed and with one deft motion hit Jericho on the back of the head with the butt of his gun. The half-aquatic fell and lay still on the ground. It was better for him, Gorel thought. Then he turned, both guns drawn, and saw the old man. The boss alone was real in this world of shades. Behind him the animated corpses stood silent, their buried eyes shining in the dark.
the old man was tall and stooped with dark leathery skin. His eyes were... His eyes... They were not there. Two pools of darkness looked down on Gorel from that ancient face, and the old man smiled. What are you going to do, he said. Shoot me? Gorel too smiled, and he squeezed both triggers, and the guns shot simultaneously, and two of the walking corpses fell back with a hole in their forehead. He wanted, needed, the desire was so strong and overwhelmed fear, overwhelmed sorcery. All he knew at that moment was that the old man was between him and his salvation, the drug given to him by a dying god, and strangely, it gave him strength, it gave him sureness. For a fleeting moment, a look of annoyance, irritation, passed over the old man's face. He waved his hand and the two fallen corpses rose up again. The flesh of their heads melted together and filled the small bullet holes, sealing them. They're dead, the old man said. But you are not, Garel said, and the old man inched his head as if imparting a grave acceptance of the words. Why? Why? The eyeless face stared at him. Did it look surprised? Why am I not dead? Garel shrugged. He merely wanted to keep the old man talking. He did not believe in sorcery. Magic was illusion, a confusing of the mind, a way of not seeing. A gun was always better than a spell. You knew where you were with a gun. Why do you keep them? This is my town, the old man said. They were my people. And something came fluttering into Gorel's mind. A memory of that other place, the prosperous town and the children and his wife, of Aaron of the lovely smile and the welcoming body, and he shuddered suddenly. The old man saw it and smiled. Do you miss her, he said. I could give her back to you, he snapped his fingers. Like that. One of the corpses came forward. She'd been a woman once. Her face was a hideous grey-green colour and patches of dead skin fell from it. She tried to smile and Gorel had to look away. Look, the old man demanded. Gorel felt his attention dragged back and suddenly there was no corpse. The lights were burning and the audience was back and children laughed and the smells of cooking food made his stomach rumble. And there she was, his wife, Erin, looking at him, as beautiful as he'd always known her, and her face was worried. She stared at him intently, and she said haltingly, Garrett, what is wrong? Slowly he holstered the guns. He wanted her then, with a passion that made his entire body tingle, and he took a step towards her, and another, and she smiled and tilted her head, her lips ready to be kissed. Aaron, he said, moaned, looked into her eyes and leaned forward. The eyes! Their colour changed and he knew then, sickened, and before he could think, before he could change his mind, his hand slipped down, not to the breasts he longed to touch, but to his blade, and with a fast angry motion he stabbed at her face. The blade slid into her eye socket and she screamed. Garel, sickened, twisted his wrist and the blade moved with it and her eye, the eye, came out and fell to the ground. He stabbed her again, removing the other eye. Sweat obstructed his view and he was glad of it. 
The second eye came out. He watched the corpse fall down to the ground and felt nothing. Woman. That was what he had thought, what came fluttering like a black butterfly into his mind a moment before. Where is she? he said. He raised his head and grinned, and the old man took a step back. Who are you? he whispered. Gorel of Galeris, he said, and the old man went very still and said, No. Gorel stalked forward. She would be close to him. Who was she? The corpses fell back from him, but their gemstone eyes never left him. That's how he sees the world, Gorel thought, through the dead's eyes. Where was she? You can't be Gorel, the old man said, speaking slowly. Gorel of Galerus is dead. Gorel's attention returned to the old man. She would be close to him. He began to circle. The old man took another step back. The whole family is dead, the old man whispered, and the throne of Galerus is filled with cobwebs and dust. Gorel's attention snapped back to the old man, his hunt forgotten. What? he said. What do you know of Galerus? The old man drew himself up. For a moment his appearance changed and he was majestic and terrifying, an aristocratic being far removed from this squalid place, this empty town on the sands of Mescatel. I am. I was. And then his figure diminished and he said tiredly, I am of Galerus and I should know. The royal family is dead, man, woman and child, all. I should know, he repeated, and pride flared again in his eyes, pride and defiance both, because I helped destroy them. Gorel stared at the old man. He looked at him closely, intently, forgetting the horde of gruesome animated corpses, forgetting Jericho lying unconscious on the ground, forgetting even the need that burned through his mind and body. It was overtaken with an older need and a more desperate one. He remembered the last night of his childhood. The candles burned in his room and outside the autumn wind blew with deceptive warmth and the torches shuddered as it passed and the air was filled with the smell of the sea and of the gardens and of the things that grew and died in the forests. It was an ordinary day and so was the night until the screams woke him. There were guards outside shouting and the clash of swords and someone far away crying and he crouched in his bed frightened and something crashed against his door and slid to the ground. That was the last thing he could remember, the sound of a nameless guard dying against his door and after that there was a haze. Sorcery. And when he awoke his room was gone and his parents and the air smelled different it was suffused with unfamiliar scents, and when they found him, their language was strange, and it took him months to learn enough to ask, and then he was horrified. They'd never heard of Galeris. He did not feel anger now. Even the call of the drug weakened in him. Where was she? He looked at the corpses again, examining them. For a moment he let the lure of the old man's sorcery entrap him again. It hurt when he did it, for when he did, when the world shifted and the people were back, 
they stared at him in horrified incomprehension, and on the ground lay his wife's lifeless body, and her mutilated eyeless face stared up at him, accusing without words. He tore his gaze away from her with difficulty, searching for her, the woman who should be there, close to the old man, but not too close, and he moved, making no sound, and heard the old man's voice suddenly frightened, saying, "'Where are you going?' Gorel did not speak, but he followed the brief motion of the boss head, and it was that fleeting gaze that betrayed him. The knife was in Gorel's hand, the narrow blade glinting in the light of buried eyes. He intended to use it. There was fear in the old man's voice when he said, Stop! And he turned and took a step towards Gorel, lifting his hand, and again, Stop! But Gorel paid him no heed. He could see her now, both in the other town and in this one. In one she was lovely beyond description, with eyes alive and a mouth made for laughing and kissing. In the other she was merely another corpse. Please! My parents are dead, Gorel said, surprising himself. He did not often talk or even think of what was gone and could never return. Does it hurt, old man, to lose those you love? The woman never moved. She stood in both illusion and life and gazed on him, her eyes quizzical, and he knew then she would welcome an end. I lost her once. I cannot lose her again. This is all I have left. There were many questions Garel wanted to ask. How did they die? And did they suffer long? He suspected they did. They were rulers of Goliris greatest and most ancient empire in all the world. They would not have gone easily. Who was behind it? And who, for that matter, spared Gorel's life and sent him, by means of magic, to the other end of the world? Please, the old man said. Gorel laughed. Please, I will tell you. Tell me what, old man? You seek Galerus. It is far beyond the measure of a man's years, but it can be reached. Seek the mirror of the pot-bellied god in the land of the Fala. The old man's voice faded away. In its place, illusion thickened around Gorel, and for a moment he was back entirely in that other town, the torches casting light on the faces of the people, his people, as they mutely watched him. Sorcery. The girl was immensely pretty. She raised her head and looked directly into his eyes. He took out hers. It was easy for him. The knife went into the crevice of the eye, twisted and plucked it out once, and into the other one and again. Gorel grinned without humour, a savage, satisfied snarl, and turned, secreting the knife, his hands resting on the butts of his guns, he faced the old man and the illusion faded, and the townspeople's faces melted away back into those of grotesque, expressionless unlife. He heard the old man scream and smiled again, and turned from the corpse at his feet. Who was he? And how did he, murderer, sorcerer of Galeris, find himself like Gorel, an exile in the world? Gorel faced the old man. Pools of darkness looked on him from a face twisted with hate and despair. Around them the dead stood silent. 
You will never return, the old man said. You will never find your way back. Better for you had you died when you were meant. Better for you had you died a long time ago, old man, Corral said. You would never understand, the man said. What did the rulers of Galeris ever know of love? And Gorel remembered a stern father who once on his throne let Gorel sit on his knees, and a mother that had held him in her hands and kissed him, and he laughed, and the old man's face twisted at the bitter sound. <laughs> Do you know the way, then? You mentioned a god, Gorel said. The old man spat on the ground. I lied, he said. You'll die as you've lived, alone. The corpses shuffled closer, closing around Gorel. Their eyes, their buried eyes, shone upon him. But Gorel had eyes only for the old man, and he could see a man defeated, a man not much more than a corpse himself. I'll find it, he said. The power that had animated the old man was gone, and he looked truly old now, and tired, and resigned, and so Gorel shot him. The guns fired once, twice, and he recocked and fired, and with each echo the old man's body shook and fell back. He died without a fight. When it was over, Gorel leaned over him. He looked at the face, but it held no meaning for him in the death brought no satisfaction. He felt tired. He sat next to the old man's body, hugging his knees. Around him, the people of the town began to fall, and as they did, the gems fell from their eye sockets and rolled on the ground, making a clear tinkling sound. And for a moment, it seemed to Gorel that it was raining, a quiet midnight rain. On the ride out, the landscape changed again, and the sand gradually shifted to brown earth, and there were low shrubs, and they passed a small forest. Jericho kept touching his mouth and swearing, but softly. Gorel had finished the packet of dust. Their growl moved slowly, leisurely across the land. Against their sides, saddlebags clinked softly, the sound of a thousand timepieces chiming in an endless murmur. Gorel was quiet. There is no shame in killing the dead, Jericho said. Gorel didn't answer. Already the memory of the enchantment was growing dim. There was a woman, dark and lovely and naked by a fireplace. But for the life of him, he could not remember her name. And welcome back. Like I said in the intro, if you did like this story, do check out Levy's Goral and the Pot-Bellied God, available as both a print and ebook from PS Publishing Now. And keep an eye out for Black God's Kiss, which will collect more of Gorel's stories. Louis's not the only one to have used a western setting for this kind of fantasy, of course. We've run other weird western stories here at the podcast. And Stephen King's The Dark Tower series, or at least the first book in that series, definitely has a certain swords and sorcery feel to it, but... 
Despite all that, Lavie's stories in this setting feel wholly unique to me, and I could do with reading a lot more of them. So thanks for this one, man. If this is one of the branches from the Sword and Sorcery Tree, I wonder what's going to sprout out next. Feedback this week is for Shveda Thakraj, Lavanya, and Deepika, read by TCA Lakshima Narishima. A story about a Rani, her two daughters, tigers, adventure, and love. Feedback on the forum, well, was generally positive, although there wasn't a lot, to be honest. A few listeners admitted to their attention wandering a bit, but Kibitzer, aka Graham Dunlop, our reader of this week's story, said it was his favorite 2012 story thus far. It was enchanting. The reading was great and suited the material well. The story flowed like a musical piece. It was full of mysterious happenings like a fairy tale or a myth. Captivating, beguiling, and wonderful. And LaShawn said, I love the magic in this story and that nothing is conventional. A female ruler who wants to get pregnant? She rubs a special oil on her belly. Her daughter? An actual rose girl. The other daughter? Flips off the prince and runs off with his sister. And the writing? So lush I could smell the flowers in Galubi's garden. Thank you so much for those comments. If you want to let us know what you thought of today's story, swing on by forum.escapeartist.net and let us know. Thanks. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Your money goes to paying our authors and helps fund their adventure, stealing the jewel dyes of fantasy fiction, which they then in return bring back to us so we can share them with you. Thanks. And if you can't donate, please write, tweet, blog, tell a friend about us, or put a review on iTunes for us. Thanks. A very special thanks this week goes to Jan Jones, our featured donor of the week, who wrote to tell us that listening to PodCastle and Escape Pod every week sometimes provides the only reading time she can squeeze in. Thanks for listening, Jan. Next time we have a job, you get the gun of the underwater god, okay? Well, that was our show for this week. Thank you so much for letting everyone here at PodCastle share another story with you. Next week, we're taking a different kind of journey. One to Border Town with none other than Holly Black and Cassandra Clare. Until then, go kill some dead people. See you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Robert E. Howard said, I'm not going out of my way looking for devils, but I wouldn't step out of my path to let one go by. <laughs>